claim. At the same time that we made a trip to Italy, we also made a trip to Ireland, and I was really excited about driving around Ireland because I was hoping that uh, if we didn't crash, because they drive on the wrong side of the road, um, the right side for them, the wrong side for us, and um, that, that we might see a castle, McGrath Castle, that maybe I could go lay, lay claim to it and move in, but I never found McGrath Castle. Apparently, that was in the northern part of Ireland. Uh, legal claim and your name and your history and ancestry go together. I found an interesting story about Domitian. He was the emperor from 81 to 96 AD where he ordered all the descendants of David to be killed. That's King David who predated him by a thousand years. Let's find all the descendants of David from a thousand years ago and let's kill them all. It's interesting that when two of them were summoned, though admitting their descent from David, they were able to show the calluses on their hands, proving that they were just farmers, and Domitian let them go. What's interesting about that story is even a farmer knew who they were related to thousands of years, or in this case, a thousand years earlier, because it mattered. This genealogy matters greatly because Joseph knew as Matthew establishes here, that he descended from David's royal line, which is why, after all, he had to go register in Bethlehem. Now, what I want to do in these next few minutes, I want to give you kind of a map for the morning. I want to take a few minutes and just sort of deal with sort of the anatomy of this list. Okay, trusting that it's not boring, Trusting it's not just a utilitarian thing, but the ancients had a very important point in their list that something is going on here. I want to sort of expose some of the anatomy of the passage, and then I want to just apply three different implications. Okay, and I'll take you to a few different passages if you want to kind of have them handy. Matthew 1 should be home base for us this morning. I'm going to take you to also Genesis chapter 38. You can kind of put a bookmark in that. 2 Kings 21, and lastly, we're going to end with or nearly end with the passage that was read uh, by the Petzold family this morning for Advent, sort of the strange Advent reading. Okay, let's deal with the anatomy of this passage. First of all, there is a lot going on in this list. Okay, first of all, there's a chiasm. I've shared before, I think, from the pulpit that this literary device that the ancients used, and people use it now as well, uh, of, of an instrument that's called a chiasm or chiasmus, where it, it, it might bring balance to poetry or something like that. It's, it has kind of a stair-step uh, breakdown. In this case, I want to show you the chiasmus or the chiasm in this passage. Look at verse 1 and verse 17. Think of these two passages like bookends. Okay, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, now go to verse 17, and we're going to read that passage and look at those particular names, and you're going to see them in reverse order. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There's your chiasmus right there. And what it's doing here is it's bringing not just balance to the passage, it's actually tying together these three figures, Christ, a.k.a. the Messiah, okay, Jesus Christ, that's what that means, the Messiah, Abraham, and David. And the way it's doing that is by what's all in the middle in verses 12 through 16. So it's a beautiful passage structure-wise right off the bat. And you can get the sense from Matthew that he is calling to attention three figures, Jesus, Abraham, and David. Let's deal with Jesus. Christ, that word Christ means Messiah. So you could actually, if you ever write in your Bible, you might write above this passage in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Christ and Messiah are synonymous. Also, from just these first few words in the introduction a couple of weeks, I shared with you this book of genealogy actually is the same language that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for the book of generations. In Genesis chapter 2, where Moses is sharing the story of creation, and then Genesis chapter 5, where he's telling the story of Adam and Adam's offspring, he uses the same language. The only other places that particular language is used, in addition to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, is interesting. 
In those two cases, the way it's used is the primogenitor. Okay, I'm going to introduce you to a new word. Primogenitor, you've heard the term progeny. Okay, you probably have some of your progeny sitting beside you, parents. And kids, if you looked up at your parents, you're looking up at your primogenitors. Okay, you're looking at your source, where you came from. And parents, as you look to your kids, you're looking at your offspring. Okay, those first two uses in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 5, a primogenitor is introduced. In Genesis chapter 2, it's the heavens and the earth. The book of the generations of the heavens and the earth. And the offspring are bushes and streams and everything that populates the earth. And in Genesis chapter 5, the primogenitor is Adam. And the offspring is then shared in the rest of Genesis chapter 5. Now, what's interesting here, that same language is used, but it's to tell the story of progeny. Jesus is the progeny of this genealogical list. He's the, the, the offspring of this list, of this book of generations, of this book of genealogy. He is the, in some ways you can consider, he is the omega of the story of Israel. But what's implied by Matthew's use of that language, the book of generations, and his identifying Christ at the very beginning also through the chiasmus, is that he's also the alpha. He's also the source from which Israel finds their identity and where they come from. They come from Christ and they end in Christ. This alpha and omega. He is both primogenitor and he is also progeny. Man, it's beautiful, beautiful balance and passage. Now, dealing with David, just briefly. David is brought up, he's a thousand years before Christ. He's the second guy in this chiasmus, or I guess you could say, yes, the second guy listed in this chiasmus, and he's of secondary importance behind Jesus. Hugely important in this genealogical, in, genealogical list. Now, in this passage, in verse 17, Matthew tells us that he structured this passage by 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. I read the passage in that way. Where I took the long pause, that was at the end of the first 14 generations. I took another long pause at the end of the second 14 generations. Now, Matthew's doing something particular here. And it's this bizarre. This is just truly one of those things that you can study the Bible your whole life, and then you bump into something and you go, okay, this is truly bizarre. They actually had a device in ancient Israel, in ancient times, called gematria, where they labeled or they assigned a number to a letter in someone's name. There's a number assigned. Okay, this isn't, this, I, I, Clay Petzold's brow is furrowed over here. Some of y'all probably are furrowing your brow too, like, what in the world? This is sort of bizarre. I'm, I, I stay away from numerology stuff. Numerology stuff is scary. People can do some weird stuff with numbers. And ironically, they're oftentimes doing it with like verse numbers, which were not even in their original language. So that's why I'm like really hesitant to deal with anything like this. But even the most conservative commentators attribute this design to Matthew pointing out the importance of David. See, what is, what's happening in the name David? D-A-V-I-D. D, V, and D. There's a number assigned to D. It's the number four. So you got a four on the front end of David and David and the back end of David. And then right in the middle, the V is the number six, which totals 14. Okay, at first time I read that, I was like, that's just bizarre. That sounds like a stretch. This guy must be a fringe sort of commentator. But all the commentaries are taking you to that reality that Matthew is by design breaking this genealogy down in 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations to um, sort of illuminate the importance of this particular person, David, in this genealogical line. We're going to spend the whole morning next week enjoying how that plays out, why that's really important. But there's gematria going on there, crazy stuff. Matthew is making a lot of David in this genealogy. Okay, the third guy in this uh, chiasmus is Abram. I'm not gonna, Abraham, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on him because we're also going to spend some time with him next week. But his reference here to Abraham is pointing back to an important promise made to a man from Ur 2,000 years before Christ, okay? There's some structure stuff, chiasmus and some important figures right off the bat, like bookends of this genealogy at the very beginning and the very end. 
Okay, something else that's interesting about this genealogical list is it's not exhaustive. Okay, there weren't exactly precisely 14 plus 14 plus 14 generations between Abraham and Jesus. There were more than that. Okay, Matthew is actually sharing with us some particular 14s, some particular people, and he's leaving out some people that he doesn't want included in the list. He's not being dishonest either. If you look at the passage, it looks like maybe he is because there's the, this person is the father of this person. You've got to understand there's some room in there for some interpretation. That actually could be read and interpreted the same way. This person is the ancestor of this person. We understand that when we look at the son of David. Jesus wasn't David's son. Solomon was. But you see him referred to as the son of David or the son of Abraham. He wasn't the son of Abraham. Isaac was. Okay, there's more than 14 plus 14 plus 14 generations here. This is not an exhaustive list. Matthew is including, this is kind of important in this particular morning, are excluding particular people from this list. Okay, next. It includes women in this list. An ancient genealogical list would not have included women in it unless they just wanted it to be like a tabloid type Okay, something that would have almost all right off the bat discounted this genealogical list, that there are women in this list. And here's, here, here, they are, here, here are those women. can't figure out how to say that. Verse 3, first of those five women is Tamar, the mother of Perez by Judah. The second of these women is Rahab, the mother of Boaz, in verse 5. Also in verse 5 is Ruth, the wife of Boaz and mother of Obed. And then in verse 6, the wife of Uriah. She's not listed by name, and I'll explain why in a moment. We know who that is. That's Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon with David. And then lastly, in verse 16, there's Mary, the mother of our Lord. There's also in this passage there, uh, these women, interestingly, most of these women, are all Gentiles. Tamar is a Gentile, listed in Christ's genealogy. I want you to think about that for a minute. Tamar is a Gentile. Rahab is a Gentile. Ruth is a Gentile. And Bathsheba, by marriage to a Hittite, is now reckoned a Gentile. And that's why Matthew identifies her as the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. They're all Gentiles. This list also, this genealogical list, you know, it's, it's got this chiasm at the beginning, accentuating the importance of Jesus, David, and Abraham. It's also not exhaustive. It includes women. It includes Gentiles. And it also includes some placeholders. Pretty exciting stuff, placeholders. One of my favorites is a guy named Salmon. Okay, you see that word and you want to say it like the fish that you ordered? It's not salmon. Okay, it's Salmon. All right, you, you actually say the L in there. He must have really had a hard time in school. I bet they made so much fun of him. This guy, he's just a placeholder. You see him nowhere else except genealogical lists. He had the sole job of marrying Rahab and becoming Boaz's dad. And if you know the story of Ruth and Boaz, you know that Boaz was a stud, like a faithful stud. So Salmon apparently, just as a placeholder, had the job of being a Maybe a great dad to a fine, faithful young man named Boaz. Some of you are like, man, you want to be in the spotlight? You want to be something amazing one day? Enjoy the beautiful thought of being faithfully ordinary and just holding your place and holding your line for those that follow you. Includes placeholders. This list also includes a bunch of kings. I counted 15, and I didn't spend a lot of time counting them, but... You may find more or less, but I think there are 15. David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, uh, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amos, Josiah, Jeconiah. Some good, some bad, some really bad kings in that list. Okay? Lastly, at least in terms of the things that I just kind of want to point out as we consider the anatomy, it includes some heroes. A guy toward the tail end of the list in the last 14 Generation section is a guy named Zerubbabel. He was not a king. He was a governor. He was one of the, he was actually the first governor that was appointed after the Jews returned from Babylon, from Babylonian exile, to rebuild Jerusalem. And this guy was a hero in the work of rebuilding the temple. You'll see his name in um, very positive light in Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. And also behind or after Zerubbabel in that 
last 14 generations, you're going to see a bunch of intertestamental names. A bunch of people that we have no idea who they are or what they did other than to be the dad of someone. And um, there's no way to find out who that, what their story is, but they're just holding the place. Okay? So now, let me just kind of consider, for if, if I can, some implications from this. Why is this more than nifty? Okay, some of you that are just like really in on details, you've like been really geeked out these last few minutes. Like, man, I love all this. You're just taking notes. Some of you are like, okay, what does this have to do with anything? Okay, let's, let's consider some implications here. We've done a little work of unpacking some anatomy. Let's deal with some implications. First, women matter in Christ's story. Okay? Women matter in Christ's story. The fact that women are listed in this genealogy is truly, it's hard for us to appreciate now, but it's truly shocking. Simply the mention of women here would have given this gospel, and I mentioned this earlier, a tabloid feel. Women were not even considered credible witnesses in ancient Israel, and here they are listed in the genealogy of Christ. What also cool in the book of Matthew is that Matthew, in his recounts of the resurrection of Christ, identifies women as the first ones that visit the tomb and the first ones that are witness to the risen Lord. Man, women have an important place in Christ's story. When considering the world's religions, there are a number of folks in our church that are doing mission work and going all over the world and engaging other cultures and religions and and other folks even here in this body that may convert or may consider converting someday. I want you to just consider what the world's religions do with their women and contrast that with what Christianity does with our women. We love our women, right? (laughs) They have a very important place in the story. The Christian economy, women matter. Secondly, women matter in Christ's story. Secondly, Gentiles have a place in Christ's story. These Gentiles that I identified here, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba by her marriage to Uriah the Hittite. These are very important considerations, seeing Gentiles in this list. It's really, really good seeing them here, considering we have a room full, as far as I know, of Gentiles. Okay, the reason this is encouraging is back in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Listen to the promise he makes to this man later called Abraham, in this list, this genealogical genealogical list. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, not just the Jews, but also The Gentiles, it's kind of cool seeing some Gentiles in this list. Here's the reality for us, people. We have more in common with those four ladies in this list than anyone else in the list because we're fellow Gentiles. They were considered vile and unclean to ancient Jews, but it's beautiful to consider that God has a plan for the Gentiles from the earliest promise made to Abraham. The Gentile inclusion means our inclusion. Okay, that's kind of cool. Women matter in this story, in Christ's story. Gentiles matter in Christ's story. And lastly, this is the last implication that I want to spend the rest of our morning on. You can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 38. And I'll share this third implication with you. And this is honestly my favorite. I like the one about women because I enjoy my wife. I enjoy the place that women have in our church. I really, it's a visceral connection for me to consider that Gentiles have a place in this story because otherwise we wouldn't be here. This would just be a Jewish thing. But here's the third point. The good, the bad, and the ugly have a place in Christ's story. I think that was a Clint Eastwood movie, or if it wasn't, it was just a good old Western, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It may not have been Clint Eastwood, I forget. I'm not an expert on it. John Adele's nodding his head. Yes. Good movie. Good, the bad, and the ugly. There's some good guys in this story and good people in this story. There's some good kings, a few of them. There's Ruth, good gals. I like Ruth, man. She's easy to like, isn't she? 
man, she's a faithful go-getter. Golly. There's some good folks in this story, but man, in this genealogical list, the story of Christ, the story of the progeny of the progenitor that is Christ, that led to the progeny that is Christ, there are plenty of the bad and ugly in this list. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our morning. All right, I'm going to read the story to you. Genesis chapter 38. It's about two people that are listed in this genealogical list that are identified in this genealogical list. One's named Judah and one's named Tamar. Okay, so just kind of keep your eye on Judah and Tamar. And I'll give you a little bit more information, kind of help you connect to this passage as we go. And I'll also leave out a couple of little uh, details. Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah, okay, let me just identify for you who Judah is. Judah is one of 12 brothers. Okay, his, his dad is Isaac, or excuse me, is, is uh, Jacob slash Israel, okay? You, you understand, he's, he, he's also got another brother named Joseph to kind of help you place where Judah is in the story. One of Joseph's brothers, okay? Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Okay, Judah was a rambling man. Judah didn't like to hang out at home. You know how the song goes, uh, Almond Brothers, I was just a rambling man. It's just time for me to go, guys. I need to go visit my, my Gentile buddy, Hira, who's a Adulamite, okay, who is also a fellow sheep shearer. Okay? So Judah's going to go visit his buddy, Hira. Okay? So Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Okay? That's the, the father of this daughter. The daughter's unnamed at this point. He took her, this woman, and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. It's kind of a funny name. I was just thinking how that might go. You know, she turns to him and says, hey, uh, uh, Judah, what do you think we ought to name the baby? He says, Er. She says, okay, let's go with that. Okay, so there's Er. all right? She conceived again and bore another son. His name was Onan or Onan. We'll go with Onan. She, or yet again, she bore a son and called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazeb where she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur. Okay, this is his firstborn son, Ur, you know, that firstborn. He took a wife for her, and her name, she's identified as Tamar. Okay, I want you to see the relationship between Tamar and Judah. Father-in-law, daughter-in-law. Okay, Judah's not married to Tamar. I want you to understand that. <laughs> Father-in-law, daughter-in-law. Okay, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Ur, bam, he's done. He must have been really wicked to just get zapped like that. Then Judah said to Onan, that's the second son. Oh, man, wow, that didn't go well with my first son, Ur. Now, Onan, I want you to go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Tamar didn't have any kids, so he turns... Judah, the father-in-law, turns to daughter-in-law and says, and son, second son, and says, hey, I want you to go get some offspring, have some offspring with Tamar now. Do the, the duty of a, of a brother, which was a customary duty at that time, and go tend to having some offspring. But Onan, the second brother, knew that the offspring would not be his. I guess technically it would still be the offspring of his brother Ur. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he didn't follow through on what he was supposed to do. And what and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Okay. Judah's down two boys. Ur's dead because he's wicked. Onan's dead because he's wicked. He's still got Tamar, and he's still got that third son who is but we, a little wee little lad, Shelah. Okay. So Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brother's. He's probably hoping that Shelah will not be wicked like his other two sons because then he's going to lose his third son too. So he, I don't know if he's young in age or young maturity-wise. He wanted this guy to grow up so he wouldn't get zapped like his brothers. This is, okay. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And I just put in my notes there, kind of the bottom of the page, a lonely widow, childless. Okay, she still has no kids. Okay. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. Okay, that's... We don't, again, we, I don't, at least at this point, I don't know her name, but she died. Okay? When Judah, this is the dad, the father-in-law, Judah was comforted, or when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. There he is rambling again. 
He's not going to hang out. He's a rambler man. He's going to visit with his sheep shearer buddies, and his go, he'd go see his friend, Hera, the Adulamite. So when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments. I guess they just wore black or something. I don't know what they wore. And she covered herself with a veil, which is very suggestive. You're about to find out in a minute. Very suggestive. Wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Okay, the third son is old enough to marry now and Judah hadn't married her off yet. He hadn't given uh, Tamar to the third son, maybe for whatever reason. He hadn't at that point, okay? So when Judah saw her, he didn't recognize her as Tamar. He sees a gal at the entrance to the gate and he doesn't recognize, hey, this is Tamar. He thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. See, she's dressed in scantily clad. Okay, apparently veils were very suggestive. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come, come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Good. <laughs> at least that explains what unfolds next. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. I guess that's the payment for the prostitute. I'm going to give you a, a goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So Judah says, okay, well, I'll take my ring off and my cord. I don't know what cord that was. And then his staff, he hands that all to her. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him, father-in-law and daughter-in-law. You got to keep the people in order and figure out exactly what's going on here. She arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. And when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, Hey, Hira, can you help me with this? To take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's that cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been there. And he's like, huh, was that a dream? I mean, I'm wondering, he's like, what in the world was that? Where'd that woman go? So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, the signet ring, the cord, and the staff, or we shall be laughed at. He had some sense of shame about what happened there, but at this point, he has no idea who he actually was with. As she was being brought out, oh, no, here's, here it goes, at the... Uh, Verse 24, about three months later, Jew was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Okay, things are starting to coming to light now. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Okay, you see this story unfold? Bring this woman out. Let's off with her head. And she was being brought out. She, uh, she sent word to father, her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She sent word, apparently, with a ring, a cord, and a staff. And Judah's like, uh-oh. Oh, uh, that, that didn't work out like I had planned. Please identify whose these are. You can hear Tamar. Please, sir, identify who these belong to, the signet, the cord, and the staff. And Judah identified and, and, and said, she is more righteous than I Man, you can hear just conviction in that dude. I mean, can you? I think we can. She's more righteous than I. She dressed up like a prostitute and sold herself to me just so she could have the offspring that I promised to her since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. That's a relief. Why don't you just take a minute and just consider this. Judah, a rambling man, one of the sons of Jacob, i.e. Israel, once his wife dies, he goes looking for a prostitute. This is a man listed in the genealogy of our Savior and Lord, the Messiah, the Christ. Let that hit you for a minute. His daughter-in-law, Tamar, a Gentile who dressed like a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law, giving birth to the boy named Perez. I don't know about you, I was imagining how this would feel at this point in the sermon. Because I know how I felt when I read this story. And I know how I felt even this morning as I was reading this story, trying to figure out how to read this story. 
I don't know if I am or not, but I feel like, am I blushing? Is anybody else embarrassed? Like, man, seriously, God, did you know about this? Did, when, when you put together this genealogy and this offspring, this line of Christ, when you told Matthew to write and to record, did you know about that story? Wow. Judah and Tamar are just flat embarrassing. We should have never called Ancestry.com. I mean, for real. That's an embarrassment. Maybe it went better with the other women. Tamar dressed like a prostitute and did what she did, but then we got Rahab, who didn't just dress like a prostitute. She actually was a prostitute. She's in the line as well. Man, then we got Bathsheba, who's married to a Gentile, who is at the very least a nude sunbather, bathes on her roof, and actually later became an adulterer. She's in that line too. Man, I'm looking at this list. I'm thinking too of Ruth. I like Ruth, man. She is easy to like, but even Ruth was a little forward. <laughs> Have you read the story of her and Boaz? Pretty pushy. <laughs> Man, I'm kind of looking at this list of gals, and I'm like, man, why, how come Sarah and Rebecca aren't in the list? Can we have some more virtuous gals in this list, please? Why not some women who we, we can be proud of? Why not some women we can boast in saying, yes, these ladies were the mothers of Jesus, our Messiah. Let's really enjoy them being in the list. I think the reason these guys, these ladies are in this list, and this guy, Judah, is because the bad and the ugly have a place in Christ's story, just like the good. Let's consider one king, just one king. Let's look at a guy named Manasseh. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 21. This is the only other real story I'm going to read to you, and it's much briefer, or much, is that a word, much shorter than um, the story of Judah and Tamar. Not as racy either, although it's, it's sad. 2 Kings chapter, or chapter 21, Manasseh was 12 years old, the king of Judah. He's 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Here's how he was despicable, if you're curious. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, his faithful father, destroyed. The high places were places where they worshipped Baal. Asherah poles and all these sort of sites all over Judah and Israel where they worship the gods of the neighbors, like gods other than Yahweh. Hezekiah destroys and levels these places, and Manasseh rebuilds them and erects altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, the king of Israel, had done. And he worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Anybody that that he could come up with, conjure up with, or conjure up, he'd worship. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Even the temple was not off limits for him. Man, this guy's vile. If you're curious how vile he is, it says next, And he burned his son as an offering Is he in this list? He's in this genealogical list, in this list, this line of the Messiah, Christ. He used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Man, this guy was bad news. It might be a little digestible if there's just one of them. 
It might be something we could just kind of move on and say, oh, it's just, he's the black sheep of the, of the genealogical line. But there were other kings, other evil kings as well, Rehoboam, Abijah, Joram, Ahaz, and Jeconiah. You'll meet Jeconiah next week. Man, I thought that Jesus would come from the best and the brightest, and I'm looking at this list and saying, God, why on earth would you include people like this in the line of our Savior and Lord? Couldn't we have come up with some really good people? Really awesome people, people of virtue and character. Why, Matthew, too, would you include them? Could you just leave the genealogical list off? Why, when you're wanting to build up and raise up young believers in your church, maybe a guy named Theophilus, maybe another guy named Christophilus, whatever their names were, why would you want to build that into them? That's an embarrassment. Eyesores, blemishes. Man, it's a good thing we at least have the good guys. Right? We got the good guys like Abraham who turns to Sarah and says, Okay, Sarah, tell everyone that you're my sister. And though they may take you as a concubine or wife, at least I won't be killed. We got the good guys like Isaac who turns to Rebecca and says, Okay, tell everyone you're my sister. And though they may take you as a concubine or wife, at least I won't be killed. <laughs> what? Have you read your Bible? Do you know that there are no good guys? It's just bad and ugly. There's David. Maybe there's David, a man after God's own heart. Oh, wait a minute. He's an adulterer and a murderer. Oh, man. There's Solomon. Maybe Solomon. No, Solomon was like an ancient Hugh Hefner. Got his little rabbit hanging around his neck, gold. Matthew, why on earth would you do this? Hezekiah, one of the finest men on the list. One of the finest on the list. One of the finest kings in the history of Judah. When he's told he's going to die, he pleads with the Lord, Lord, give me a few more years. He said, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. Your sons are going to become eunuchs in the courts of Babylon, but you're going to live a few more years. He's like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> you know what a eunuch is? Man, seriously, they're just bad and ugly. This is a motley crew. The genealogical list is a motley crew. It's a sordid bunch. Can you imagine digging up this genealogy on yourself? I mean, really, on yourself. You go to Ancestry.com. You're like, oh, man, I'm a, I, bet I'm, I bet I'm related to a king or like an Olympic athlete or something. Yeah. And you, you can find out you're related, your great-granddad is like an axe murderer or something. God, that's an embarrassment. Don't tell your children. Don't tell your wife. Don't tell anyone. Matthew, man, I'm, I'm, what in the world is Matthew? Why in the world did you tell this story, Matthew? I'm just thinking, what in the world were you thinking, including this genealogical list? And these characters in this story, I thought maybe, I, I bet Matthew smiled as he included these scandalous folks, considering the fact that he too was a scandal. Remember, he, he's a tax collector, also known as corrupt politician. I bet he smiled. I bet he smiled and said, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us some scandals in this story. And the scandalous says, I too really shouldn't be on any list. Man, I bet he smiled too at the thought of building this important truth into young believers like Christopolis and Theophilus. Here's the only point I have for today. It comes from the work we've done, and it's just a simple, single point. The reason we can know that Jesus came for the sick and for sinners is because he came from sick and sinners. If he'd come from a bunch of home runners, you know, if he'd come from the best and the brightest, most likely to succeed, you know, those guys in the, the, uh, year, the, the annuals, you know, the yearly school annuals, yearbook, best hair award. We got a funniest. Man, that's not the list. <laughs> we should enjoy 
that he came from sick and sinners so we can be convinced that he came for sick and sinners of which we are. Man, I love this list. Among this list, among this line, there were liars. There's the incestuous. There are adulterers. There are murderers. There are prostitutes. There are Gentile women, and there are despicable kings. But he came to be Savior of all. Man, I need that. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Man, what a sordid bunch. But he came to be Savior of all. This is a theme. You've got to know this is a theme in the Gospels. Just listen to these few passages. You can listen and jot down the references. They're very similar, but they're in each of the Gospels. Matthew 9, 9 through 12. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew, a.k.a. corrupt politician, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Yeah, you. And he rose and followed him, and Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, in, I can't see through my glasses right now, my Hold on, let me regroup. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many other tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said, yuck, what are you doing with those guys? And he said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Man, you gotta, gotta love that. Mark chapter 2, verse 15, as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with those yucky sinners, those tax collectors? And when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And in case you're wondering about that, I came from sinners too. Pharisees. That's Mark. We got Matthew and Mark down. Let's see what Luke says. Chapter 5, verse 32. I've not called, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The same story of the call of Matthew. In that case, he's called Levi in Luke chapter 5. In John chapter 4, Jesus came for a woman, a Samaritan woman, with five former husbands and a current live-in boyfriend. Man, he apparently did really come for sick and sinners. He didn't come from the best and the brightest. He came from people beset with weakness because he came for folks beset with weakness. Man, I thought about whenever Clay and Corey were reading that passage this morning, what that might have sounded like. It, it's not your typical Advent reading, if anybody was really noticing. I wonder what Clay and Corey were talking about. Was this, was this the right? Yeah, Clay, I'm glad to see that body language because I'm sure like, was this a typo? That's kind of a weird passage for an Advent reading, right? Can I read it again now in light of this genealogical list? Colossians chapter 1 this is where we'll end the morning. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, even a Judah and Tamar, even a Manasseh, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. He chose the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised. I'm going to just tell you this right now. I'm glad to see some scoundrels in the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Are you? Is it an embarrassment? Would you be one of those saying, hey, Jesus, you're sitting with those yucky sinners over there? Or would you be like, hey, make room? Because I are one. Bad language or bad grammar on purpose. I is one. Let me sit right there with the rest of these sinners because I need to be next to that Jesus who came from sinners for sinners. Man, that's good medicine for this scoundrel. I'm glad to see that he called the sordid to follow him. Anyone else? Any other sordid? Mm. He not only came for the sick and sinners, he came from the sick and sinners. Who wouldn't love a Savior like that? Mm, let's pray. God, we are so grateful for this Jesus, the Messiah. God, we are so grateful for an honest Matthew. We're grateful for a Matthew that recorded not the best and the brightest, but the honest and the realistic. God, more than Matthew, we're thankful for a Savior that came for that mess, that came for the messy, that came for the sick and the sinners, that came for the needy and the dependent, that came for the despised and those who are not and the foolish things. Lord, we celebrate that this morning with everything in us. We love that Jesus. We honestly enjoy that Jesus this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, this passage, I think there's something interesting that I want to encourage you with in this Lord's Supper. There's a potential for us to consider this this thought this morning of this, he came for sick and sinners and say, yeah, he came for us, of which I used to be one of those, and miss that you still are. We're still sick and sinner. We're still weak. I don't know if you paid attention to the passage I just read, the passage that the Petzolds read this morning. There's some past tense and some present tense in here. Notice the present and past tense. It's written by Paul. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were, past tense, wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. He's talking about a present calling. He's talking about a past tense thing. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish. Corinthians. He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We'll never have a place for boasting. You need his grace. We need his grace and his righteousness. This passage goes on to say, just as much on day last as day one of your confession. We tend to forget that kind of stuff. We tend to think, yeah, yeah, we're all sinners. But not very much. Not as much as I used to be. Yeah, we're sinners. But we're not as terrible as we used to be. And God becomes for us someone we rename we rename him as he whose favor must be earned. Instead of benevolent, graceful, merciful father who adopted a bunch of sinners into his family, he becomes he whose favor must be earned. 
And we become less and less, at least in our minds, potentially less and less in need of his grace. I'm thankful that Paul includes some present tenses right here. Present tense words. I shared this passage uh, two weeks ago at the Lord's Supper. Three weeks ago, I guess. And it's a, it's a, it's a helpful one to me. Greg Fields shared this passage with me at Christie at a time where it really ministered to us. And I want you to notice what's going on in this passage. You can jot it down if you want to look at it later. And then we'll, we'll pass out our elements. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul's just written about this thorn in the flesh. We don't know if it's a besetting sin. We don't know if it's a physical ailment. We don't know what it is. It's ambiguous, and I think beautifully, wonderfully ambiguous because you can insert your, your, your thorn in there. But he said to, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul, you're still weak. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Not hiding them. Thank you, Matthew, for putting this story in there, this genealogical list, with the blemishes, with the sore spots, because it reminds us where we come from and who we actually are apart from Christ. I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that, in order that, the power of Christ may rest on me. If I don't boast about it, if I just hide it, I'm good. I don't need any grace. I'm not as much of a sinner as I used to be. In fact, I barely sin. <laughs> The power of Christ is invisible. When you boast in your weakness, when you celebrate a list like this and go, yes, I'm a scoundrel too. I need Jesus just as much as Judah and Tamar did. Man, then I'm telling you, the power of Christ will rest upon you. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Present tense. I want to beg you this morning as we distribute these elements to realize that weakness isn't just something he works with. Like, I'll make up for your weaknesses. It's actually something he capitalizes on. That's why you can boast in it. That's why you can celebrate this list. We should boast in our weakness so that, and in order that, the power of Christ is displayed. Let's distribute the elements and enjoy our Savior.